I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Now, my guest today is not an actor, not a musician, and she's not an athlete. Although, she could be. I didn't ask her. She could be an athlete, but she's not famous for being an athlete. She's famous for being an artist and an author. Now, I was going to play a clip of her doing a reading, but I thought, well, that's no fun. Let's see if you guys can guess who it is if I give you an audio riddle. All right? This is kind of like those emoji riddles that you see where you get like a cucumber, a penguin, a ukulele, a car, and a catcher's mitt. And you're like, oh, it's Julia Roberts. Uh, we're going to do something like that. I know this is only going to make sense if you're in my head, but uh, let's just try it. Okay? So check this out. All right, now check this out. I'm going to stop there. It's way too hard. I thought this would be easier to do, but it's uh, it's very hard. So I'll just tell you who my guest is. It's not a member of the Talking Heads, but it's a live episode with somebody who is very creatively aligned with the band. I'll explain when we get there. My guest today on the program is Myra Kalman. Let me tell you a little bit about Myra Kalman. Born in Tel Aviv in 1949, Myra Kalman and her family came to New York when Myra was just four years old. And as soon as she could read, Myra couldn't stop. Devouring book after book, she knew she wanted to write, and draw, and create. She attended the High School of Music and Art, which is the same school that our past guest, Erica Jong, attended. You know who else went there? Slick Rick. But let's save that for another podcast. Back to Myra Coleman. Interestingly, in high school, Myra studied music primarily, and that led her to NYU. But once she got to NYU, she declared English as her major. She met journalism student Tibor Kalman. They fell in love and, well, then they dropped out of college. Oh, that old chestnut. Tibor had a great gift for graphic design. Myra had a great gift for art, and the two of them together became a force to be reckoned with. Their M&Co design firm became pretty much the hippest graphic design business around. Their clients ranged from the Talking Heads to Swatch, and they also designed the opening sequences for Silence of the Lambs, True Stories, and Something Wild. They had two kids, and while the firm grew, Myra directed her attention to writing children's books. Her first book, Stay Up Late, used the Talking Heads song of the same name for its narrative. The paintings accompanying the text were eccentric, idiosyncratic, and wholly original. Although Tabor died in 1999 at just 49 years old, Myra Kalman has never stopped being a creative force. Aside from the 20 books she's written, including her beloved series on Max Stravinsky, The Poet Dog, Myra Kalman has illustrated books for Lemony Snicket, Michael Pollan, and an updated version of Strunken White's Elements of Style. Not only that, but Myra Kalman's resume has so many highlights, it would make Bob Dylan go, you know, I haven't done that much with my life. She's illustrated New Yorker covers, produced a theatrical dance interpretation of her blog. She attended Obama's inauguration. She won the AIGA Medal for Storytelling, Illustration, and Design. She created sets for the Mark Morris Dance Group. She was awarded a residency at the American Academy of Rome. She had art exhibits at the Contemporary Jewish Museum of San Francisco and the Jewish Museum of New York, and she's given several TED Talks. And, I should mention, 
That's a partial list. Now, this chat with Myra was recorded at the Montclair Presbyterian Church in Oakland in front of a live audience. Because, you know, the dead ones are no fun. We talked about a lot of stuff. Her book, Beloved Dog, the creative process, underwear. Well, you'll see. All right, enjoy this conversation with me and Myra Kalman right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Thanks everyone for being here. Um, so when I was a kid, we had the New Yorker hanging around our house all the time. And my favorite cartoon, because I wasn't reading the articles, uh, I was too young, um, was by Booth. I can't mm-hmm. remember his first name. George. And George Booth. And in every one of the cartoons, in a weird, <laughs> right, some weird, crusty old couple complaining yeah. about life, there was always a dog in every single cartoon. And that was sort of the signature, and I always, I always loved that and looked for that. And I'm wondering for you, when you went back over your work, because this book is in many ways a medley of work you've done, um, were you surprised to find that, like Booth, the dogs were showing up everywhere you went? I was, you know, it came from a conversation with Char- Charlotte Sheedy, my agent, we were just talking about the things that are interesting to me, and she said, you know, you painted a zillion dogs, and I said, I don't, I don't think so. And so she said, take a look at your work. So it was an interesting moment where I realized that I, I, I found out that I had been completely obsessed with dogs from the very first drawing that I did and uh, to this very day. Uh, and, and, and of course, it was funny because I was terrified of them, so as I, as I write about in this book, but it didn't stop me. And the, the fear that you had wasn't based on, on an actual encounter with one, right? It was just simply... Well, there were some dicey encounters, okay. but, but, but they were precipitated by me being so afraid of dogs that I started to run, and then a dog thought it would be fun to chase me and then may, you know, and maybe, nip at, you know, maybe nip at me. But uh, no, it was, it was the legacy of you know, family insanity. Which I can relate to, because uh, my mother was a therapist, but when I was six years old, she said to me, don't walk close to bushes because someone's in there who will probably want to knife you, right? So, Of course, which I think is probably, you know, still true. Sage but, advice. So from then on, I was yeah. afraid of bushes and also my mother. Um, but, but, but in that you, order. In that order, yeah. Uh, but then you get over that. So I'm wondering, you know, I know you met your husband and he had, he had a dog, and that sort of began the healing process, which you no, knew. And, no, no, it didn't. no healing. Okay, no healing. No healing. No it was his parents' dog, right? right? No, that was that was that was the opposite of healing. That was like there's a reason to be terrified of in-laws and dogs. So uh, they're not here tonight, so I can say we can speak freely about uh, about them. Uh, so oh, there's something just happened. It's strange. So um, the 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 reason that we got the dog was was for a horrible reason when Tibor be- became ill. And so that, that you know, fast forward, fasts forwards a, a, a great deal. So, so until then, it was an aesthetic kind of conceptual appreciation of the funniness of dogs, the eccentricity, the, the delight in their faces. And it was more of a humorous thing for me. And they were always kind of lurking in your psyche, really. They're lurking in my psyche. And you know, they don't speak. They don't speak. I don't know if you know this, but dogs don't speak. <laughs> they, don't they don't say anything. No. And uh, so that's a tremendous relationship to have with, you know, to, to have such intense relationships with, a, you know, an entity that does not speak is, is you know, is quite extraordinary. So, um, so I was happy photographing them and drawing them and, uh, and not being near them. <laughs> <laughs> um... Now, the, the dog that you got when your husband was ill, he is the cover star of the book. Right. Um, he was the cover star of, you know, he was on the New Yorker cover. He was a New right. Yorker cover dog. So that was, <laughs> a, was it an easy choice then for the book in terms of that was, a, that was an easier choice to decide to who was going to be on the cover of the book then? I mean, he was sort of a sentimental... Yeah, I mean, when, you know, I did a lot of, um, you know, I do a lot of sketching, and then it, but it was clear that the, the story was about this, this beloved dog, and... 
who captured my heart completely. And so it was, a, you know, even though it was a the book was a compilation, the memoir part was, of course, about Pete. Yeah, and the uh, and Pete was charged with with real significance because he came at a time that was very emotionally trying, and so he he um, was almost like a symbol of, of like a rebirth kind of, um, which is really lovely. You, you, there's a phrase that you use in the introduction which I really love, where you talk about people things being heroic. I think the word that you use heroic and heartbroken, right? Um, and you mentioned even objects like shoes or clothing or can be her Can you just talk a bit about that? Because I thought that was really lovely and, and poignant. Uh, I have a, wow, that's too much. <laughs> I have a, a very intense relationship to inanimate objects. They're very, for me, they're very animate. They're very animated. And, <clears throat> and so I, I some, something happens and I see these things and I just fall in love. And I talk about how you know, in the, in the work that I do, I, I walk down the street and I fall in love with a rubber band that's on the sidewalk, a particular rubber band that's on the sidewalk, or a broken chair, and the idea of things being broken and discarded. So to me, they, it, they speak about memory and history and fashion and design and desire and the idea that we all want stuff and then we don't know what to do with all the stuff that we have and why do we have so much stuff? So, you know, and the cycles that we go through in our life. So those, those objects are wrapped up in, in, our, in our lives and in our hopes and in our despair. So there isn't, and I, I always talk about that the first, to me, the most important, the most important aspect of all of that is architecture and how if, if I were to ask everybody to draw a, a picture of the first room they remember, You'd all, you'd all have a memory of a room whatever from whatever age it was. And it would be extremely powerful because you placed in space with whatever objects there are around you, uh, it's, it's searing. And I think that um, we continue our lives reflecting all of those extremely early memories of how we felt in, in relationship to, to objects and to rooms and to the people who were in those rooms. So... I'm endlessly amazed and fascinated by all of that because, because it comes back to, you know, why are we here? No reason. Here we are in a church. No reason <laughs> at all. That's so, right. <laughs> let me make my opinion clear. Yeah. No reason at all. So, um, and there was, <laughs> and there's no hope. It'll never get any better. And there's no hope. So, good night. But there's also, but there is dinner. But there is dinner. There is dinner. There is dinner. Yeah. And there are the glorious, I mean, of course, and then there's being alive, and, yes. then, and, and then, and there you are. This is what happens when, when two Jews are in a church on Friday the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is this what it's happens. It's not a good night, yeah, and yes. there's the right. There are bad things going on in the world, but... Um, but you've kind of just explained why it's so difficult to get rid of things, too, because we tend to charge them with emotions, right? Yeah. Which could be dangerous, too, because then things tend to pile up. Right. Um, well, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking at in, in, in this part of life, how to deaccession and what it means not to have, you know, I'm going to have a pop-up store and, I, and probably I'll end up like, you know, I, I was writing about it that I, you know, I, I have these grand plans and I get rid of a button and I think that's, <laughs> I really tried to get rid of everything but the only thing I could get rid of it was a button and so, and even that I'm a little bit sorry that I gave that away but... <laughs> It's, it's really hard, I don't know, you know, but once you do give stuff away, you feel so liberated, and you feel so light, and you feel so, you know, amazingly clear um, that it's an interesting conversation. Because the memory is more powerful than the object, right? Or is that wrong? I don't even know what to say. I mean, I the of course the emotion and the memory is wrapped up in that object, so what happens when you give it away? Right. I mean, all is well, all but is well. It's, hard to, it's hard to know that. Yeah, yeah, and we, I think we tend to, we tend to fight things going into obsolescence, right? We sort of want to hang on to them and keep them relevant, even when they are long past. You know, because there, there are things, there, there are stuff, and we, we love them, so then you say, why would I give away things that I love? I mean, assuming that you like the things that you have. Right. But I just want to, I, I just want to segue slowly and quickly. Yes. Into um, into the museum of my mother's underwear closet. I don't know 
I just want to say, if anybody's coming to New York, who's coming to New York soon? Oh, good. You have to come and visit. So I just want to say that talking about things, my mother, who I adored and who uh, was a great inspiration to me, uh, died 11 years ago. And uh, she lived in a studio apartment in the West Village on Horatio Street and was meticulous about her closet and had a you know, militaristic stacking, ironing, starching, and folding of everything, including her, as we say, her majestic bras and her copious underpants. Everything was lined up with beautiful, beautiful precision, and she only wore white. So, and my mother was quite, was a really quite a beautiful woman. So this closet was what, you know, what we looked at as some kind of incredible, incredible, you know, just incredible conceptual and real project. Okay. So then she died 11 years ago, and it was clear to me that her closet was an emblem and a symbol of something more important than a closet. So I thought that we would have, we would keep the closet in that apartment, and it would be a museum, and that my sister could sit in the room all day long, uh, <laughs> hoping that people from Japan, let's say, would come by and pay her like a dollar, 50 cents. I said, I don't know if it should be 50 cents or a dollar, we'll think about it. And then. <laughs> And that would be the museum of my mother's closet. So my sister, amazingly, balked at the whole idea and said that I was insane. <laughs> All right, not so insane. Okay, so 11 years later, my son, who has a, a museum in an elevator shaft on Cortland Alley in New York City, I don't know if any of you know it, but it's called a museum, two M's in the front and two M's in the back. And so he has this wonderful collection of cultural anthropology, and a little niche opened up down the alley, and the landlord said, you can have that little niche too. And so we said, clearly, this is going to be Sarah Berman's underwear closet. We had kept everything in boxes for 11 years, waiting. I didn't know what we were waiting for, but I knew that something had to happen. And, and, and so it opened in June, it's like a vitrine in the Museum of Natural History on this crappy alley. It's now, we're now talking to museums. Curators came from all over the world to see it, and now it's going to start to travel and start to be in museum installations. And it's, it's more than her underwear. I mean, it's got other stuff in there, too, you know, like her shirts and her shoes and, and linens. But it's really a meditative space, and I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes you shouldn't throw things away. Because, because they end up being a really important uh, collaboration, first collaboration with my son, and just an, an, an amazingly instinctual way of looking at the world and showing the world. As a cultural artifact, and as yeah. a, yeah. Right. And so, and so you, know, you know, you never know what's going to happen. I'm worried about, I don't think I have enough pairs of underwear in my life, now that I'm thinking about that. How I'm much does one need? How many, I, I, how many I, do you have? Now, I, I, maybe I have ten. That's a nice Is that, o- is that okay? No, it's okay. good. All right. a show of hands. How All many? Right. No. How, what's a good number of underpants? No, I think ten is good. It's More than seven. It's a little seven. bit intimate, but okay. It's a little intimate. Okay. Um, but we're family. <laughs> uh, More than seven, I think, is what you need, though, as a start, as a base, as a baseline. Yeah. Um, when I got a, years ago, I had I had a pet, and uh, it was a, it was a young pet. And was it an animal? It was an animal, and the and the what was it? It was a cat. Okay. And the I remember the poet Brenda Hillman said to me, "She's beautiful. Let go a little bit every day." And I went, "That's you're blowing my kitten buzz." But I mean, she. That's I, insane. I, it's insane. But I saw her point because basically, animals have a finite time on the earth. Is she a Buddhist? I, I don't know. Uh, Does it sound Buddhist? It sound kind of yeah, Buddhist? it yeah. sounds very Buddhist, indeed. Yeah, I think yeah. she might be. Uh, um, maybe someone can Google that. Uh, but I think that she... I, I understood her point, though, because she was basically saying that you, you do understand that this is finite, in the sense that objects are not. Right. Um, but you can't prepare... You can't pre-prepare for, for loss. No. It's a fake preparation. You know? I mean, you have to live your love and then feel your loss and... Live, live with that. I can't imagine saying to somebody, love something less. That Each would be, day. That would be insane. Yeah. Maybe I'm mad at her all these years. Maybe I actually realized I'm, I'm mad at her. I'm mad at her. I'm too. Mad too. It's just <laughs> an idiot. Or no. At first I thought it was really smart, now that we're talking about it, and 20 years has passed. Um, I don't want to get political, but I want to hear your stance on 
cats. That's really funny. You know, there was somebody who was talking about that, that dogs, they, uh, there was a New Yorker or something or other, and I think that they were trying to decide, like, I don't know what they were trying to decide, like if cats were better than dogs or dogs were better than cats, and then they decided that dogs were Jewish and cats were wasps. No. <laughs> I don't want to get into a religious I thought thing it was the other way around, actually. Really? I thought cats were the Jews. Is that what you said? No, dogs were the Jews. In Mouse, cats are the Nazis. In Spiegelman, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that was a buzzkill, but you mentioned the All Nazis. Right. Right? <laughs> All the fun is over. It just, that was it. Pull the cord. Crowd pleaser. Crowd pleaser. Um, but you, do you have an opinion on cats? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I let them live and let them be healthy and happy. There is a, an old joke that when you see somebody with their dog, that the dog resembles them. But what I love about your book is that it also seems to indicate, you don't address that, but that they also kind of match the person's emotional needs or mood. And, and that's the first time I've heard that before. I'm 101 Dalmatians. That's true. I missed, you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you talk a bit about that, though? Because that's such a cool idea. My dog was an idiot. So <laughs> I guess that says something about I was looking for somebody who matched my intellectual abilities. He's an idiot. But he was, you know, and, and that's another interesting thing that the relationship with the dog is that you, the, you know, the, the criteria is completely, you know, off all, all the charts. And you find out that you can love somebody who's an idiot, you know, because there are many people we know who are, but it doesn't, you know, that's a different conversation. But, um, so, so, you know, the, 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 the personalities crisscrossing, I don't know, do they? I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe, yeah, we're gonna have to ask some people how about this? this? What if dogs give the person emotionally what they need? Well, that's for sure. That's for sure, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, dogs provide some kind of primal, there's no question, dogs provide a primal release of some kind of good feeling, good chemicals in, in your brain and body. That's, that's, that's a given, you know. If, they, if you're not terrible, if you don't think they're going to jump and rip your face right, off. Right, right. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. When you get over that, yes. then, uh, then it's, all, it's all golden. My uncle, his brother, um, stole his girlfriend when they were 18 years old. Stole, right, stole her heart away, and, and that was that. And my what uncle... What happened? What's that? Did they get married? Yes. And, and my uncle never forgave him. And they never spoke again. And so the brothers never spoke. Never again? spoke again. Really? Right. And he would always say he would talk about him. and He would say it's been twenty five years, and it's been twenty nine years. It's been he was keeping count. It's been fifty seven years, and we still haven't spoken. And he loved telling that story. That unforgiveness, that grudge, became like an identity or a badge. Right. A badge. Dogs don't do that. Dogs are incredibly forgiving. Um, I had to, you know, I have to pull that one all the way back. But dogs do not, they're such forgiving animals, and that forgiveness in them is something I think we can learn from. And I think you address that really well. Um, do, you, do you admire that quality? Because <laughs> it is kind of a nice, a nice I, quality. I admire, I admire that greatly. I and mean, that's what you, you learn because my dog ate my camera, and I, and I say that if my kids had gone near my camera, I would have killed them. But if the dog ate my, ate my camera, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard of. So, <clears throat> to be able to forgive, to be able to be kind, you know, and patient, and give unconditional love, and to, you know, and all of those things that, uh, it's more challenging with people. I mean, even your kids, they speak. And so, you know, I love my kids very much, but you know, it's, there's the purity of essence with, uh, on that level, and you really do learn a lot. You really do learn what it means to give of yourself without expecting anything in return. It's sort of that, that Abe Lincoln quote at the end of the book about no malice and just, right, just, just being... Right. Do dogs are very much like... They kind of embody that Abe Lincoln... And he spirit. had a dog. He did have a dog. He had a dog named Fido. <laughs> oh, he, oh, was, oh, really? Yeah, he really yeah. did. But he didn't take him to Washington. Who, someone watched him all those years? Or all what? those years, all those years. Mary Todd's relatives watched. Um, they watched Fido. Fido. You mentioned that, that, in, that Abe Lincoln is immortal. He will live forever. Um, 
I'm, I'm curious to why that is and what your view of how one remains immortal. Is it through art or through memory or through good politics? Abe Lincoln, the man that I love and I would have married, and <laughs> Myra Lincoln. That, that's the one, yeah. And very, yeah, yeah very that's the one, yeah. Man. Yeah, not the, not the guy from Austin, Texas. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Um, you're asking me about Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. The nerve well, of me. I love no. I you must know that how much I adore I Abraham do. Lincoln yeah. and and um, do you know about the the pocket watch and the music? I do not know about that. All right, I'll tell you quickly. Okay. Uh, so Abraham Lincoln was, of course, an extraordinary genius of, of epic proportions on many many levels, and also a great humanist and a, a man of great kindness and great compassion and great uh, humor. So uh, when he died, I was bereft. <laughs> just couldn't see how I could go on. Uh, no, I really didn't think that I should marry. I should be married to Abraham Lincoln. And I always talk about how there's a little bit of a glitch, time glitch going on there. But uh, anyway, so when I curated a show for the Cooper Hewitt uh, last year, going through their collection and choosing 40 objects out of you know hundreds of thousands that I thought exemplified the, you know, a, a sense of what life was about from birth to death and the kind of stations of life that you have. So there were, there were objects of sleep and objects of eating and, and objects of, you know, of, of mourning and all kinds of things. And in the mourning section, I wanted, I, but I wanted to borrow from the Smithsonian Abraham Lincoln's top hat, which is extraordinary, an extraordinary iconic object, obviously, in American history and in the history of, you know, of all of of, you know, of, uh, even greater than that. But it was too fragile to borrow, so they said, why don't you borrow something else? And they have uh, a po his pocket watch, wow. which was a very, very expensive, solid gold, beautiful pocket watch that he had bought when he had won a case before he became president. But that was, the, like the, and they don't know which pocket watch he had with him when he was shot. He had, because he owned four, and they didn't have it on the list of artifacts of what, um, what was with him. So at any rate, this watch was given to the Smithsonian and hadn't ticked in 150 years. And the curator, Harry Rubenstein from the Smithsonian said, you know, I've always wanted to make this watch tick and it's possible that, there's, uh, that we could do that. And I thought, well then if you could make it tick, you could take the ticking, record the ticking and give it to a musician and he could write a song for this, for this, this gallery exhibit. Um, and that's what happened. So, George Thomas in Baltimore spent the whole day removing all the whale oil, the whale, whale oil that had just gunked up the watch for 150 years, made it tick for about 10 minutes. It was recorded, and the ticking, which was never heard before and will never be heard again, was recorded. And Nico Muley, this fantastic composer, um, wrote, the lyric, wrote the music and I wrote the lyrics to a song with the ticking called Take Your Time. So, I, and it says, what is the most precious thing? Time. And, and, and the time is too little. So, clearly the time was too little for him. And, uh, and catapulted the country into whatever, whatever we have today is a reflection of the fact that he was killed. So, um, so I, I, I think about him a lot because I think that he was searching for... for what you can see, he, he was searching for a, a, for a truth, a truth in this world. And I think that any time you encounter somebody who you feel is searching for a good truth, uh, you, should, you know, should pay attention. Do you, in terms of collaboration, because you, you've collaborated with many people, but Daniel Handler seems to be a really good foil and a good partner for you. Um, do you enjoy that process of collaborating? You mentioned you're collaborating with your son, uh, writing the music for the Abraham Lincoln song. Um, is collaboration something that you, that you enjoy, or do you prefer solitary <laughs> darkness? I hate, those, right? I hate those collaborations. No, you know what's really wonderful? It's, it's great to be working in your studio and to do your work, and then to encounter people along the way who you think, oh, this is really, this is really an interesting person. Wouldn't it be nice if we did this or that or the other? So I don't do that many collaborations. Well, I don't even know what that means. I mean, I do a number of them, and and they and they. I would 
like to feel as if I am myself while I'm doing them. So now I'm, in, I'm embarking on an incredibly challenging and maybe delusional collaboration with a choreographer where I'm, we're creating a ballet together that he wants me to perform. Well, I, do you know that I performed as the duck in Isaac Mizrahi's production of Peter and the Wolf? I, I did find, yeah, I did know that. I wore a tutu and flippers. And, I, <laughs> and that was courageous, but it was a comic role. And so I could pull that off. But now we're working on a full-length ballet that's going to premiere at Jacob's Pillow in 2017. And that collab, it's a leap. You know, it's a leap of, do I trust you? Do I trust you? Do I trust your ideas? Do I trust the conversation to be honest but not brutal? Do, you know, all of, those, all of those elements. Are we having fun? Is it funny? Uh, you know, is, can, the, can the person be the best of themselves? So there are a lot of, there are a lot of questions to, to confront in collaborations. I think Wayne Gretzky said he, that he misses 100% of all the shots he doesn't attempt. And so the fact that you're taking the chance and, yeah. and doing this is... What's I mean, the worst that could happen? Like total humiliation and, uh, <laughs> and horrifying results. So to say. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a brave, a brave thing to do. Are there other projects that you're thinking about or circling that, that you can reveal that you might be attempting? I think this is, this is probably... Um, this is probably the biggest one in terms of the culmination of a lot of things to do costumes and sets and to be to think of the artistic direction and to talk about music and to also be part of it as a you know Tons theater performance piece. So I think that in some ways this is this is you know everything that I do coming to life. So I, I don't know. I mean, besides wanting to walk around the world. From garden to garden. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the last. That'll be the la that'll be the finale. That's it. That's it. That's the last act. <laughs> right. Um, can you talk a bit about why you were drawn to the Talking Heads um, "Stay Up Late" song? Because that's one of my favorite things you've ever done, and um, uh, one of well, my favorite songs. You know, uh, my husband and I had a design studio called M and Company. For those of you who know it, and we. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, and, uh, and there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the 80s and, and uh, early 90s. And so the Talking Heads were, were his clients. And um, we had two little kids at that time. Not David and I, but Tibor and I. <laughs> and so <laughs> David had his own kid. And so it just seemed, and, and I had been doing a lot of illustration, but, but there, I wanted something bigger, and Tibor saw right away that this, we were kind of in the, the right place at the right time, and that a collaboration with a new way of looking at children's books and a new, new content for, you know, people who were of that, of our generation, and also interested in typography and in design, so there were a lot of, you know, ripples in this um, relationship with the Talking Heads. Plus, we knew that if I was doing something with David Byrne at the time, I'd get a, I'd get a contract in two seconds. Which is what happened. So it was a, it was a kind of a savvy, you know, business entree into the publishing world. What's your take on David Byrne? My take on yeah, him? he's a reason. I think he's sensational. I think he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant musician and curator of music, and a nutty, funny guy. On another musical reference, I, I remember reading an interview with Joe Strummer years before he died, and he was saying that he was better in his forties than he'd ever been in his 20s or 30s, because he knew what he couldn't do. And mm -hmm. he said, I don't need to attempt things that I can't do, because I know that now. I know what I can do. Right. Um, do you employ yeah. that same wisdom, or do you, because it seems like if you're doing a ballet and you've never done that before, it seems yeah. like you're willing to kind of I, go without a net. I think it's the opposite. I think that what you, what you don't know you can do, you should try, mm. because it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not trying to be a brain surgeon. It's not like, I think I'll, you know, just do that for a few months. But, so I'm clearly within a certain framework, but I think that, um, well, everybody should do what they want to do. I have a weird <laughs> feeling you could be a very good brain surgeon, by the way. Thank you. I, just, I, I think you, you don't want me to, to um, perform surgery on your brain. I kind of you do. Not want that. I kind of do. Um, maybe some questions from the audience. I'm sure there are several. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> I want to thank you very much. Some of our collection of books that you've written. Uh, there's like 10 of them here. Uh, and I want to particularly thank you because I've been reading your children's books to my children. In fact, I brought one of my children with me. This is Nina. 
Um, and I'm wondering, um, you know, I feel like I know your uh, kids a little bit from Sinar Mrs. Kaplan and uh, Pete Goes to School and, and a bunch of other books. And I'm wondering if, um, if the kids in the books are really your kids. Yeah, Lulu and Alex are my actual children. And um, <clears throat> so, and I, and they, of course, they inspired. I mean, the re I think the reason I started doing children's books really was because I had children and I wanted to have that diet, you know, that was just fun and fabulous. So, but um, they thought, they didn't, I went to Japan and I always tell them, Mrs. Kaplan, and put them in it, Lulu and Alex, and they always thought they had been there. So it was really sad to tell them. No, they didn't. Yeah, but they thought they did, which was hilarious. So um, and sad, a little bit sad. But at any rate, no, they modeled for me for everything and inspired everything I did. Absolutely, to this day, as clearly as I'm, you know, still collaborating with them. That's great. Thank you. And I, I read your other books to my daughter now. Um, I know the, the kids grow up, right? Yeah, they the age grows up. Other questions from the congregation? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was interested in why I was an idiot. <laughs> I don't think he thought, right, why was he, was he objectively? He didn't think. Well, um, Irish Wheatons, he was an Irish Wheaton, and they're just not considered the smartest dogs on earth. You know, like training, that's not going to happen. So, you know, like those, but again, that's the criteria, that's one very narrow criteria. Um, you know, the poodle is... You know Einstein compared to to the Irish Wheaton. So, uh, but the, but of course you know that. So I'm using really stupid criteria <laughs> to describe. Did you choose the Irish Wheaton? Yes, we you know we had a therapist. So you know Tibor was ill, and <clears throat> our therapist said he owned three Irish he owned three Wheatons, and he said why don't you test drive one and see how you do. And so I, you know, I begrudgingly took this dog home, and then I thought, okay, we can do this. And then we got Pete. So we were there was a kinship in that. But I also wanted a dog that was like a cartoon, and you know, Irish Wheatons jump up on all, all fours. They're kind of like spoinky dogs. It's a complete cartoon. And I thought, this is an actual cartoon come to life. I can do this. <laughs> Dalmatians are smart too, aren't they? Aren't Dalmatians supposed to be quite clever? I haven't heard that. No? No. Maybe I just made that up. Um, no? Are they not? They're very erotic. No. They're erotic. Well, that's so right. I, am, right. I am too. I didn't want to say that. <laughs> um, other, other questions? Have you yeah. been to the Washington um, Park, dog park, it says people without dogs? You know what? Right, people, right. It's like you're some kind of predator. Well, what are we going to do in there? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what are they afraid of? Uh, no, I went and I so I go in there. I went in there to shoot the film of uh, you know of the little YouTube thing that we did, and uh, and uh, nobody seemed terribly frightened that we were there to, to grab a dog and run away. Or I don't know. I don't know what. That's really funny. So. Uh, you know, I have a lot of fun. I, you know, I walk in Central Park in the morning, and before 9 a.m., dogs can be off leash, and so that's a fantasia of dogs. It's really amazing. I know you've been asked a million times, but you don't have a dog anymore. I do not. And, but will, will you go down that road again? I may not. Okay. And <laughs> I'm, sure. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, he was a singular experience, ah. and, and then I can try out all my excuses that I travel so much, etc., but um, we'll see what happens. It hasn't revealed itself yet, as we okay. say, okay. in our family. So you leave the door open for a dog? Leaving the door, leave the door open for anything. Okay. Maybe even a cat. I don't think so. I, don't <laughs> I had to push it. Allergies, allergies. Oh, yeah. Any other questions you might have? Yeah. What's your typical day look like? <gasps> My typical day is really great. You know, I always say like, the, tears are, the tears are invisible. Um, I wake up very early. I'm not a fan of the night. This is like past my bedtime. I wake up very early, and then I uh, read the obits. I don't like to read the paper. I don't like to read the news. I don't watch the news. I think that's a, really a black hole of horribleness that, I, that 
I, I don't have the resilience to to be okay after reading all the bad news that's presented to you first thing in the morning in the newspaper. I can't do that. But I can read obits <laughs> that that I can handle. And then um, and then I go for a walk in Central Park. Um, and then I either come back and start to work, take a bus down Fifth Avenue, which is the greatest moment of the day. And then I work in the studio or, or I'm wandering around. And basically, I'm, I'm on deadline all the time, so I do have things that I have to do for a certain, for a certain specific uh, time and date. But I allow all of the serendipity of what happens around me to enter into the work, and that to me is the greatest pleasure. I just, I don't know what's gonna happen. But I know that every day many amazing things happen, and I can put that into my work. And so, and and that's it. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, some stupid sitcom on TV, and then a little Proust, and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, just, just, just keep balancing this. Sitcom and Proust. Yeah. No, I mean I'm in a seven-year uh, Proust. I'm a seven-year commitment of a Proust reading group with a with a with a with a, with a Proustian leader. And that's the greatest, one of the greatest things I've ever done. You're finally getting to Proust. Yeah. You have to be of a certain age. Yeah. There's and a... you have to be able to take the time to do it. So, I mean, I'm learning bridge. I'm reading Proust. I'm learning Tai Chi. Wow. And I'm going to start piano lessons again. Wow. That's... I think that it's good to learn things that you don't know. And my, my motto now is, um, I plan to do everything badly. Yeah, so, so there's no pressure. Exactly. Right. There's a great cartoon in The New Yorker from years ago where there's a guy and his wife is pointing to a guy on the couch and there's a guy on the couch who has glasses, he's an intellectual and he's angrily reading something. And she says, who's that? And he goes, oh, that's Matt. I hired him to read Proust for me. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's how you do it. Um, why the obituaries? Just out of curiosity. Well, the obituaries, are it's an epic, it's an it's a, it's a bit of epic moment in the day, in the beginning of the day. So it's mini movies, and people are chosen because they've done something. Right. And usually, and if they're written well, like by somebody like Marguerite Fox, who writes the best obit, you know, obits in the world, they're extremely amazing and heartrending and funny. And so you know, you you're you're looking at what people did with their time on this earth. And then you say, now get going. Right, right. And you waste look, not a moment. But you have not wasted any moments. I look well, at your life I've and I think, many moments, but <laughs> in between, you, I mean, you have a packed CV and you've done so much. Yeah. But um, it yeah. makes sense. Because this, this is it. This is it. Too grim. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Yes. I knew that I wanted to be a writer when I was little, and when I read Pippi Longstocking, uh, I, read, I remember reading the two books that really made an impact on me were The Secret Garden and Pippi Longstocking, and I knew that I wanted to do that. I knew that I was going to be a writer. But it took me a long time to figure out how to be a writer, and then I decided that I would draw instead that writing was too complicated and too, too difficult. And so, um, I then I just thought, oh, I can put those together. It's called a book, you know, so <laughs> I heard that. I've seen those. So I always knew that I would do that. There wasn't ever a question in my mind that I wouldn't be, do those things. I just, it was just a question of, um, of sticking with it and persevering and not, not really not having a choice. So, um, I mean, I, I've been a waitress, which I thought was fantastic. I love being a waitress. Um, and I, you know, there are other things that I would do, but I knew that those were the things that I would always do, so it was clear. So I was lucky, because I don't think everybody has that. Yeah. I love your art. It's so beautiful, but I feel like I don't have the vocabulary to really describe it. I feel like I, if I saw it anywhere, I would know right away that was yours. But how do you think about what's distinctive? I don't know if it's about the depth of the color, or the, what do you, how do you shape your world that way? Uh, that's, I know, I have, a, I have a very strong sense of my color palette, which, you know, then it's, it represents itself in the paintings. And, and probably what 
what I would say resonates most for my work is that um, it's, narrat it's narrative and personal, but not, inex not inex inaccessible. So my desire is to communicate. My desire is to, to do something that's funny and beautiful and uh, eccentric that only, that only I could have done. So, you know, whenever I do a piece of, whenever I do a painting, I always say, well, what am I really, what do I really want to put in this? And even if I, di if I digress and put dogs where they shouldn't be or put scenes <laughs> of the Chagall family where they shouldn't be, I know that that's a story that I have to tell. So I think that, I mean, and that's the, the thing about anybody who's working is that nobody can duplicate you. And so, you know, I don't think about how it should be, you know, that it doesn't need to be right, it just needs to be what I'm feeling. And so that's, you know, so it doesn't always work out. Some things are better than others. But I think that the narrative quality, the personal narrative quality is felt. Uh, and I'm also approaching it from a point of love and not a, of cynicism. You know, that I, you know, I, have a, I, I have a sense of the absurd, and it's not sentimental, but it's, it's really looking at something and saying this is really a wonderful thing. And that's what I focus on. What else has recurred in your work in terms of, we look, but there's dogs, right? There are ladders. There's ladders. And chairs. Hats. Hats. Um, what? Lawns. Lawns. The girls can't Oh, lawns. Oh, yeah. Lawns. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I collect, you know, I have a, a, a vast photography library, and um, I would start, and I collected photographs and from flea markets, and I realized, oh, look, I have a million photographs of girls standing on lawns, you know, because who didn't? Yeah. Who didn't stand on a lawn and get photographed at some point in their life, uh, begrudgingly or not, and you have to try to look nice with some kind of pose, you know, so don't know what to do with your hands, you know, so that was, I mean, that was a great, great collaboration with Daniel, but, um, um, yeah, ladders for sure. I love ladders. Yeah. Fabric. Fabric. Yeah. Textiles. I, it's funny because someone. I love castles. Someone, yeah. Someone pointed out to me once that that I, I always say things in threes. Oh, you're doing that thing again. So then when I when I when I do things in threes, I go, ah, oh, now I'm doing that thing. When you when someone pointed out that there's dogs in your in your right. work, yeah. then when you start painting a dog, do you go, oh, now I'm doing the dog thing? Do you become really too aware of it, or is that? I haven't until now, but now. Now we've done it. Now All right. You've, you've done it. You have done it. I'm never doing another dog again as long as I live. I may not. No, that's it's funny. Yeah. yeah, it becomes very a thing. powerful influence. I know, yeah. I, we just met, but I'm never doing a dog again. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I feel like I've just ruined something. Um, or just, or, or made me go down a different, you know, a new fresh road. I'm nudging you towards cats. <laughs> I'm sorry that you didn't have a shrew because I love shrews. Oh, there you go. I love to draw. Oh. I love to draw shrews. I put shrews in almost everything I do. <laughs> will you uh, will yeah, you sign yeah. some some books? Sure. Great. Thank so you we're. Very much. Wasn't she fun? That's Myra Kalman. Uh, now, for all Myra Kalman things, new books, exhibitions, appearances, go to myracallman.com. Uh, for information about me, alexgreenonline.com. Remember, you can get the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, and if you happen to find yourself on iTunes, please give us a rating. It'll make a big difference in our small little life. Okay. Uh, all right, you can follow me on Instagram, Embers Podcast, or on Twitter, at Embers Editor. If you want to email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Uh, maybe you have a guest you'd like me to track down. No problem. Send it my way. I'll do what I can do. Okay? All right, let's close things off. Talking heads, stay up late. I'll see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. <laughs>